Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Musa Algarbi. He is a Paul F. Larsersfeld Fellow in the Department of Sociology and the Mellow Sawyer Fellow and Trust and Mistress of Experts for the Interdisciplinary Center on Innovative Theory and Empirics in partnership with the American Assembly at Columbia University. His research explores how knowledge is produced, transmitted, evaluated, and put to use and how people's thinking is shaped by the social contexts they find themselves in. He applies these lenses to a range of topics, some of the ones we're going to cover on today, so race, inequality, social movements, extremism, policing, national security, foreign policy, and more recently, U.S. political elections. So, Dr. Algarbi, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so today we're going to go through some of the topics you cover in your work, in some of your papers and articles. Uh, and we're going to talk about freedom of expression in academia, Trump, uh, uh, violence in, in US police, and also uh, sociology in general. So let's start with freedom of expression in academia. Is it really undermined nowadays, as some people claim? Well, uh, so I think the problems that we have in higher ed are, I, I guess there's sort of four interrelated problems that, 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 that are sort of most important. Um, one, there is a, there is a self-censorship problem. Um, it's common for uh, both uh, students and faculty. Um, for both students and faculty, the main driver seems to be uh, concern about peers. So, um, so for instance, uh, students, when you look at students' uh, studies that show, ask why they self-censor, some of them are worried about the professor judging them or giving them a bad grade. But the thing they're most concerned about uh, and, and, and I'll add, there's, there's not really a lot of evidence that that happens, uh, and I'll circle back on that later. But the main thing that they're uh, worried about is peers, peers excluding them, peers um, uh, judging them, peers not wanting to interact with them. And the same thing is true for faculty. Um, you know, uh, sure, some faculty get fired for saying the wrong thing or, or you know, but the, or, or get, you know, mobbed by students or, but the, the main thing um, that faculty seem to be worried about too is this um, isolation. You know, they don't want to be the person who walks into the into the lounge and everyone's like, Ugh. and they, you know, they want to be invited to parties and they want, you know, um, they want to feel welcome and, uh, and 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 so what you see even for say conservative faculty members is a lot of them tend to. Um, focus on topics that are non-political and uh, try to keep their political beliefs kind of close to the vest so that they don't, uh, um, and, and so this is true of faculty, not just students, uh, but, but the main driver, one of the main drivers seems to be um, a desire to sort of fit in with your peers and to be feel comfortable in your social institution and um, things like that. So that's one problem. Uh, another problem that's sort of related is that there's, um, there's a very strong amount of ideological homogeneity in universities. Uh, so in social research fields, for instance, um, uh, liberals tend to outnumber conservatives by roughly 10 to 1. Um, and that's 
Um, and it's not that there needs to be that the it's not that the ratios within higher ed necessarily have to perfectly mirror you know whatever they are in the baseline of society. But when you get like when you get too much homogeneity, you can have problems like um, groupthink and uh, extremism and important questions can just sort of fail to be asked. Important uh, axioms that everyone relies on can be like false or deeply problematic, but no one can even realize it uh, because it never even occurs to them to question this thing because everyone's working from the same set of assumptions, right? So there are problems there uh, too. Um, uh, and, and they can contribute to the self-censorship. So if you happen to be one of the few people, the one in 10 who's not, um, uh, who is a conservative instead of a liberal, for instance, um, then you, you know, uh, that, that helps uh, contribute to the self-censorship. A third problem that's sort of related is uh, discrimination, mm -hmm. uh, ideological discrimination um, and, and other forms of discrimination. So, uh, so discrimination becomes a problem also kind of the higher you go in higher ed. So again, when you're, when you're an undergrad, um, you know, most of your professors don't take your views particularly seriously. They're not likely to punish you for saying, for holding a view different than them because they just, you know, they want to get you, get you, um, you know, you, you'll, they'll give you your grade, you'll move on, you'll move out of their class, you'll might just, you know, after four years, you'll just leave the institution altogether. Most people are not going to proceed to grad school. So there's nothing at stake. <laughs> and so, um, so professors, you know, they're, they're not going to, you know, create problems for themselves, but most of the time by trying to punish students for holding. Now, as you go up, though, that changes, the, the, the calculation changes a little bit, right? So for grad students, a grad student, like a PhD student, is someone who, you know, um, the department is going to invest significant resources in, and they're going to be around for like, you know, the next uh, five to seven years. And, you know, um, they're going to be, uh, and they're basically training to become professors, right? And, mm -hmm. and at the job market, and, and then on the job market, when people are applying for, um, uh, uh, for tenure track jobs, et cetera, that's another place where discrimination is much more likely, and again, because the stakes are high, because the person you hire, especially, uh, you know, they're going to be around um, for the foreseeable future, and um, and they're going to influence things like what kinds of students come to the department, what is right. So the stakes are higher, so the discrimination becomes more likely. And um, when you're a professor, discrimination, uh, and, and just uh, and even a grad student, but once you become more involved in things like publishing and research. There are new forms of discrimination that become common. So um, there have been studies that show that discrimination happens in things like um, institutional review boards. When you submit your project for approval, um, there are sort of ideological biases that seem to affect which projects get approved or not. Um, when you apply for grants or fellowships, uh, when, um, when you submit your papers for peer review, uh, so, so, uh, and, and all of these things have important professional consequences, right? Because if you get a bunch of grants, if your projects get approved, if you're winning fellowships, if you're publishing, then that's going to enable you to climb like faster up the tenure track ladder or whatever. And if you're not, then you're going to have a difficult time doing that. So there's important sort of um, professional ramifications mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the higher up you go. 
Um, so, so discrimination is the third problem. And then the last problem I'll, I'll just note um, that that's sort of related and, and uh, exacerbates some of these other issues is that there have been important changes to the structure of higher ed institutions in recent decades. Um, uh, to, to name a few of them, a growing share of uh, jobs now are not uh, tenured jobs, but 70% um, or so of all faculty at universities now are contingent faculty rather than tenured faculty, which means they have much weaker uh, protections. They have um, less ability to vote, uh, you know, and, and make decisions in faculty governance things. Uh, faculty have also been overall, you know, bracketing the tenure question, faculty have been um, sort of uh, weakened in some senses relative to administrators on a lot of campuses and the share of administrators to faculty is growing um, uh, in an unfavorable way for faculty um, uh, at institutions uh, nationwide. And then finally, um, because the profit models for some universities have changed uh, in and the, the sort of financial model, I guess, uh, of universities has changed in recent years, a lot of um, university leaders adopt something like a, the customer is always right. They, they see students as customers and they take a kind of approach, which is basically like the customer is always right, which gives students a lot more um, influence over university decision-making than maybe they've had in the past. Uh, and so the, the cumulative effect of all of these things, the weakening of tenure, the growing strength of administrators and students is that faculty are just in a weaker place than they used to be within these institutions. And, and so um, the combination of all of these factors creates a situation where uh, people might not feel comfortable um, speaking or expressing ideas where a lot of um, a lot of uh, ideas are never are never even end up getting um, surfaced. You, you can see this kind of um, homogeneity and uh, group things set in, and uh, and that's unfortunate. They're, they're they're very real challenges. But I would say there's like basically those four of them, um, and they're sort of interrelated challenges. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so. But do these problems affect more one side of the political aisle than the other? For example, do they affect more right-leaning students and faculty than the left-leaning ones? Well, um, yeah. So I mean, if you look at the yeah. So if we're if we're, we're if we're looking at different effects on the political or ideological spectrum in particular, um, there is yeah systematic variance. I mean, what's interesting is so so left-leaning faculty do get fired for political speech a lot too. Um, it's just that they they tend to be there tend to be the episodes unfold in different ways. <laughs> so for left-leaning faculty members, when they get fired, it's not usually because students are are, are uh, upset at them and launch campaigns, and then university presidents go, ah, okay, you're fired. Just calm down, kids. Right. Um, uh, which is what happens sometimes on the right, or, or you know, uh, or you'll see these kind of blowups on social media. All right, now when left-leaning faculty members get fired for political speech, it's usually because um, someone uh, like a Fox News campaign um, was launched to target some professor who's who's not you know who's um, who's not tenured, 
and uh, and you know a, a firestorm kicks off on social media about it. Trustees are getting upset. Alumni are sometimes making um, angry phone calls, and you know and and similarly, university leaders often make the same decision where if they think they can make the mob go away by giving them a head, they just give them a head. Um, <laughs> and of course, the only thing that does is make people hungry for more heads. But you know, um, that's a lot of times university leaders are more concerned with things like how can I make things calm rather than like thinking through these kinds of things in the future or standing up for principles of like they just want peace and calm and orderly functioning in their universities and that's a problem. Um, but that said, uh, it, yeah, uh, when you look overall, it seems like in terms of sheer numbers, the um, left-leaning faculty get, there are more left-leaning faculty than right-leaning faculty that are fired for political reasons in terms of sheer numbers. But that's in part, that's largely a function of the fact that there are just so much, so many fewer right-leaning faculty to begin with, right? <laughs> so when you look at per capita, um, uh, right-leaning faculty are more likely to are more likely to get fired, even though most faculty who are fired are, are left-leaning. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, so there are sort of different um, differential effects, and in some and in many respects, uh, the problems, um, self-censorship, discrimination, uh, especially ideological discrimination, um, things like that are are you know uh, are not exclusive to to uh, people on the right, but are probably are, are much more um, intense for people on the right. Uh, and, and not just people on the right though. So, so uh, other perspectives that are not particularly welcome uh, at universities uh, or, or within a field can like, so for instance, religious views, almost irrespective of whether you're, you know, religious views are not taken particularly seriously. If you try to write a paper or something which is um, explicitly religious in its framing or thinking or whatever, like good luck, <laughs> you're not going to get that through peer review or whatever, right? And and there are sort of other things, as, you know, but um, other dimensions as well. But the uh, in terms of ideology, but yeah, but but in terms of the the left-right dichotomy, it probably is more intense. It, it, well, not probably, it just is more intense for people on the right as compared to people on the left. Yeah, but does this affect some disciplines more than others? I'm asking you that because I have lots of scientists on the show and I mean, I don't hear many, for example, biologists and people from the more hard sciences like physics, chemistry, mathematics and so on. Uh, talking about this issue, it's more people from the humanities and the social sciences, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there is a there is there is some difference, and it's and it's because um, you know people who work in the humanities and social sciences, the work they do is just intimately bound up with these kinds of questions about politics and <laughs> and and justice and the you know because um, you know what what is politics? It's it's the questions about you know how society fundamentally it's questions about how society should be arranged and how resources should be allocated, uh, how prestige and, uh, you know, uh, honor within a culture should be allocated, things like that. And that's, you know, uh, and that's exactly what social researchers are sort of studying and intervening in and all of this. So, so the work we do is kind of um, intimately bound up with a lot of this mess in a way that, that, um, that is 
different than say um, biology or physics or chemistry. But even, you know, but even biology. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, things that touch on biology, um, like um, sex and gender. Uh, um, the biology applied I, I, to humans. Perhaps. Yeah, things like that are, are um, you know, uh, yeah, genetic uh, genes as they relate to things like IQ uh, or, or things like that uh, tend to be like flashpoints. And in fact, some, those, those are some of the most, uh, maybe some of the most toxic um, uh, things in the right now are, are, are areas where sort of biology touches on these kind of uh, social questions. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the further you move away from questions about human society and human whatever, the sort of, uh, the more chill <laughs> things can often be. Uh, and, and even within social research fields, there are differences, right? So, um, economics, for instance, uh, it's, it's funny. Um, yeah, so, so most economists also skew left, but it's, it's something closer to like the general base rates within academia. So, so among economists, it's something like five to one, uh, mm. sort of Democrat to Republican instead of 10 to one in social research fields overall, right? Um, so that's a significant difference, but it's still overwhelmingly a liberal field. But the difference is um, uh, that economists, uh, <laughs> well, two things, I guess. Uh, one, um, because the field is not so skewed, um, ec economists are, have a much easier time talking to, so like even if you're a left-leaning left economist, you can talk to Republicans and whatever and engage with them, in a, and a lot of them do, I mean, right? Uh, which, one of, my, one, of, one of my colleagues at Columbia, uh, who used to be at Columbia, he's now at CUNY, uh, Van Tran, he put it this way. He said at one, uh, at one point, one challenge for the field of sociology, for instance, is that if you're a Republican lawmaker, say, and you want to know, um, and you want to know, and you want you you want to consult a social scientist about um, about a given policy or proposal that you're thinking about, who are you going to ask? Are you going to ask an economist or a sociologist? Right? Your chances are you're going to ask an economist for their advice, even though they also skew decisively left, but because if you if if you're a Republican lawmaker and you imagine asking a sociologist for advice about some policy, the the sort of caricatured response of what you would expect a sociologist to say to you if you're a Republican lawmaker is you're you're it's a bad policy it's maybe even an evil policy and you should maybe consider not being a Republican anymore right um, so, which um, uh, which is not necessarily the same if you. If you're an economist uh, uh, and, and if, if you're a Republican lawmaker who engages an economist, they might push back, they might make suggestions, but they'll engage with you in a more, and, and they'll, they'll even, they're more willing to sort of run with your premise and <laughs> sort of, um, here's how you can do Republican policy um, in a way that I think is, you know, more sound or whatever. Um, and you can even find Republican economists. You can also find, um, I guess Republican or conservative sociologists, but you really have to look a lot harder, right? Um, and, and so, uh, and so this is—he uh, argued, and I think rightly—that this is one of the challenges for our field, 
um, is that precisely because we have this um, public perception that, uh, and, and not an entirely unreasonable one, that we're sort of skewed hard left, that we're antithetical to, or, you know, that we're sort of opposed, you know, in a, in a sort of political way to people on the right or to right-leaning thought or whatever, that a lot of people who are not, anyone who's on the left, I mean, who's not on the left, is just disinclined to care what we have to say about anything or to consult our opinion on things. And, and that's a challenge for the, it's, it's part of why the fact that economists are not like this and don't have this reputation, I think contributes in a lot of ways to the prestige that economists enjoy relative to other social scientists. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's even variation within a social research. I, I, you know, for economists, I think part of it too is that they have this heavy reliance on formal models. And, uh, and even though economists tend to lean right on, on cultural issues, um, I mean, sorry, lean left on cultural issues. They teen, they, they, most economists are in favor of free markets and whatever. So, so if you're a Republican, you can play ball with them, right? Like, again, like, um, you're on the same, you're on the same economic team. They're not socialists. They're not, you know, et cetera. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, uh, and they're not, not only are they not socialists, but they're, they're probably not, not even like super hardcore, um, like uh, Keynesians and or, or or anything like that, right? Like they they probably favor some kind of state intervention, but they're not like hardcore about it in the way that say sociologists, even sort of free market oriented sociologists, often be much more receptive to various forms of interventions in the market in a way that economists would be more averse to. You know? mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, but are these phenomena that we only see? in academia or do they affect also the general public? Yeah, uh, well, okay, so that's interesting. Uh, so, so, I mean, one thing that we've been seeing in recent years is that a lot of the tensions that we've been seeing on campuses have been creeping their way into different workplaces, especially workplaces that rely heavily on college graduates, on, on um, so, you know, fields like tech or finance or, or law or, you know, um, you're starting to see some of these problems um, or tensions or whatever uh, uh, boiling up. And, and so a lot of employers are also sort of struggling with some of these same questions, you know, and how do I signal to my, to my employees or to prospective recruits that I share their values on issues like Black Lives Matter or, you know, um, how can I avoid uh, lawsuits or, you know, um, how can I, how can we, um, yeah. And, and, and so you're seeing this kind of, um, a lot of these tensions creeping up in workplaces. One thing that's interesting though, I'll, I'll say, um, is that when you look at polling uh, and, and surveys, uh, survey data, okay, so what's interesting is that workplaces, most workplaces, there's basically no free speech is not a thing. Like there's most, most places you work, you don't have a right to free speech. You don't have an expectation to free speech or, 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 or um, privacy or anything like that. They, when you sign the contract, they basically tell you this, right? <laughs> and, um, and, but, um, but at the same time, 
when you do surveys and polls, asking people in the general public how comfortable they feel expressing themselves on various issues versus people in academia, how comfortable they feel, um, people in the general public are more comfortable uh, talking about. And so even though they don't have any right to free speech, any expectation to privacy or anything like that, um, and people do get fired, I should add, people get fired in the workplace all the time for saying political crap at work or something they said on the email that gets out of control or, you know, it happens. People do get punished for free speech, free speech issues at, at work um, all the time. But they still, they feel more comfortable uh, talking about politics or other controversial issues at the water cooler and emails with their neighbor on social media than academics do, even though, um, you know, in terms of formal protections, um, uh, which, which again, are not evenly distributed. If you're tenured or, or, or whatever, you have a lot more protections than if you're a contingent faculty member or a member of the staff or whatever. Um, so the, the protections are not even, but, but there's at least an ethos, like in principle, even if you're a contingent faculty member, it's understood that it's bad in principle for your university to punish you for speech stuff, even if you're a contingent faculty member, right? There's at least that ethos, um, which is not even present at, at most private institutions. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, again, people in, outside of academia feel more comfortable expressing themselves typically. And what that shows, uh, and it's an important insight, is that the, the primary challenge within academia is actually not one of culture, uh, I mean, not one of rules and laws, but of institutional culture, right? And in terms of protections, uh, people in academia are better protected than most other 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 people, and um, and a lot of the sort of legal battles over free speech and the like within academia have already been waged in the 90s, especially organizations like Fire very aggressively sort of and and won. They won a lot of these. They they pursued these cases and they won them. And um, and you know there's there are still. Uh, battles that are being waged in whatever with respect to these legal protections. But, but by and large, we are much freer, formally speaking, legally speaking, you know, in terms of the institutional rules and norms, we're much uh, uh, freer than, than almost anyone else. But if we don't feel freer, that's because of a culture that we've co-created rather than the sort of structure um, uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's an important, it's, it's very interesting when you look at the differences uh, and, and similarities, I guess, between academia and, and outside. Um, yeah. mm -hmm. But are these issues related in any way to uh, principles like, for example, diversity, inclusivity, equity? Because, I, I mean, some people talk about that when they mention, for example, censorship on campus and stuff like that. Are they related to these kinds of things? Well, I mean, it is, it is the case that, um, okay, well, yeah, so I'll say it is the case that as, as, as populations get more diverse, um, there are more considerations that you have to, there are more considerations that people have to make in order to, right? So um, until, you know, the early 1980s, basically, um, men were a, a majority on campuses. And before, you know, as the further you go back in time, 
the, the less women there were. Uh, and in fact, uh, women um, didn't start doing co-ed, co-educational with men until, you know, relatively recently in history. And then even when they started attending university with men, there were basically no protections for things like sexual harassment or discrimination or whatever. And so, um, and so a lot of women didn't um, uh, choose to do co-ed, co-educational stuff, even when they were attending college until, you know, it was in the 1980 or so, I think, when women finally, when women eclipsed men as being the majority on college campuses, despite the fact that they've long been the majority of the U.S. population. Um, uh, but moving from a, a situation in which men were the majority or, or that were exclusively male, um, like for instance, at the school I, I used to, um, I graduated from with my bachelor's and master's degrees, uh, University of Arizona, a lot of built, it was created in the 18, uh, late 1800s. And a lot of, um, a lot of the buildings have a men's room on one floor and a women's room on another floor. And the reason that is, is because originally there were no women's rooms. There were just bathrooms for men because only men attended them. And then they had to retrofit the, the, the buildings to accommodate the fact that women were now attending. Um, and they didn't want to, like building a whole second bathroom is a, a, a nightmare. Uh, so they just said, okay, this floor men, this floor women, this floor men, this floor. And, th and it's like this for a lot of places, right? where you can see when you look at the actual structure of the institution, the physical structure of the institution, that they were designed for a, t for a time when um, you know, the populations were, were more homogenous. And, and the same thing is true in race. Like until the 1970s, really, um, up until 1973, there were still 19 states in the United States that black people and white people did not attend school together. Like when my father was trying to attend school, my father started attending university um, just after, uh, just after the, you know, uh, after this important court case that that got rid of this kind of um, uh, uh, separation um, within uh, public universities in the South, um, and. Uh, yeah, so until the 1970s, uh, you know, and, and especially prior to the, to the uh, mid to late 1950s, there were basically, you know, no black people in, in a lot of, in most um, colleges and universities. Uh, and, and, you know, mutatis mutandis, the same is true of other sort of racial and ethnic minorities. Um, uh, Jewish people were actively excluded from a lot of universities for a while, for instance. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so, so in terms of racial and ethnic diversity also, uh, you know, and, um, and you can go on down the list, socioeconomic status until, you know, after World War II and, there was, and the GI Bill uh, allowed a lot more people from different um, socioeconomic backgrounds to attend universities, more working class people, et cetera, especially after changes in um, student aid, like Pell Grants and things like that became more common. Um, before... Before that, you know, pretty much the only people who attended college were rich people. Uh, so as um, and so as universities changed to fold in people who were not, and so before that, when it was just basically wealthy white men, um, it you know, it was probably the case where people did feel freer in some sense to talk about say race issues or gender issues or whatever 
without because whoever you would the people you might offend by whatever you have to say just weren't there they, <laughs> there was no one to offend right the uh, um and so as as institutions become more diverse as you have more minorities as you have people of different socioeconomic statuses as you have women as as um explicitly as gay as lgbtq people become um more out uh and are um, explicitly queer scholarship becomes a thing uh, which was which starts in the 90s and um, more people are starting to identify as LGBTQ etc um, then then you know some of these tensions around uh, race and class and sexuality and gender and stuff become more pronounced than they were and people have to consider things they have to exercise maybe more care than they are used to or otherwise would have, you know, um, in terms of just navigating the social environment without needlessly offending your peers and, and things like that. So there is a sense in which these things are tied to diversity. Um, but, uh, and, and this is the thing is diversity has costs. I mean, diversity has benefits and diversity has costs, right? There's trade-offs. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, but I'll say, even before, one thing that I'll, I'll caution against, though, is um, even before the uh, before universities started becoming more diverse in terms of gender or race or whatever, there were still a lot of blowups uh, about and a lot of tensions about things like um, about free speech and uh, as it relates to ideological. Um, uh, discrimination and ideological homogeneity and things like that. So, for instance, the first major case of the first major, major public case of a professor getting fired for their political views um, happened in 1900, uh, in 1900 at Stanford. Um, a, a sociologist, uh, Ross, was fired for saying, for, for making provocative comments about immigrants and Asian Americans at a, and the president of Stanford decided to fire him um, for these remarks. And um, in the aftermath of the big, huge controversy that um, uh, eventually Dewey and others formed an organization, the AAUP, um, to uh, organize professors to uh, arguing that people like trustees and university presidents and whatever shouldn't be the ones calling the shots in terms of what can be said or not said on campuses or whatever. And they created um, basically the, the tenure pr protections that we take for granted today were created in the aftermath of that. But then one of the first things that professors did when they got this new power as a result of this lobbying from, the, from organizations like the AAUP, um, faculty were given a lot more governance power over universities. They were given a lot more um, protection, a lot more clout to decide that they should be the ones who decide what's appropriate and not appropriate, or, you know, what's in bounds or out of bounds or whatever. <laughs> but one of the first things they started doing with this newfound power was trying to censor <laughs> and purge uh, people they disagreed with within, within. Um, and so they started prosecuting their peers who they disagreed with almost immediately, right out of the gate, once they got this new power. And, and so you started seeing this other um, movement for viewpoint, what, what you could call the viewpoint diversity movement, begins in, you know, again, in the early 
early 1900s, and it's been a campaign, you know, consistently. It's not something that started, and there have been, you know, a host of organizations and, and, and whatever over the decades that have been trying to, to um, push for these, um, to, to, to sort of hold the line and ensuring that institutions of higher learning are places where a diverse range of views inter interact with each other to enrich our understanding of the world, et cetera. Like this has been a movement that has been going on for like a century. Um, and so uh, I guess my frustration sometimes is that in some of these discussions, people talk as if, you know, you know, in the good old days, things were so free and we could say whatever we want. And it's like, well, when was this exactly? During the McCarthy Inquisitions when professors were being fired left and right, right? Um, like this has been a constant, a constant struggle and it will always be a constant struggle. And part of the reason it will be a constant struggle is because the sort of norms that we're trying to um, uh, embody within these institutions are actually not really natural. They're not, it's not like the normal impulse actually is to kind of um, is to cluster with people who are like yourself and whom you sympathize with and to try to um, uh, get rid of heretics and things like that. Like this is the natural, normal human impulse that, um, uh, and, and so we're trying to create these institutions that are in some sense unnatural to help us overcome. And the, the point of it is, is precisely the unnaturalness, right? To help us overcome some of our sort of general proclivities and weaknesses to, to accomplish together something that's more robust, that's truer, that's more complete than we would otherwise be able to do on our own, right? But, but the very fact that we're trying to, to, to do this kind of um, contra-natural project means that it will always be a tension. There will always be a tension. It will be something that people always have to fight for. It's never going to go away. And, and so people should resist the impulse to think that, that this is a new problem and that, that, you know, the struggles that we're having today are, you know, uh, somehow, um, yeah, unprecedented or unique or, you know, um, I, I think it's actually much more helpful to, to look at the sort of deep story on, on how this has, has gone on and will, you know, um, for centuries and how what we're doing today relates to these struggles that have, you know, been going on. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but because people worry about diversity, I'm, and I'm not talking about viewpoint diversity specifically, but diversity in terms of gender, uh, race, and so on. Uh, nowadays, we have diversity training programs on campus, at work, etc. So, uh, but do these work? Do they fulfill the goals that they present? Uh, no, they don't. Well, and so what's unfortunate about about the way? So, so a minute ago we talked a little bit about how like uni universities um, changed a lot in terms of the who 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 attends university, right? And that had important downstream effects. Uh, you know, like soon thereafter about who was on the job market or who was being folded into different. Um, employment sectors, right? All these people graduated with degrees, they got hired by, um, and so a lot of, um, after universities had to grapple with diverse, a lot of these diversity issues, employers had to grapple with a lot of these diversity issues that often they hadn't, hadn't had to deal with um, really themselves either. And so, um, and so they, 
there was a kind of urgent need for like, how can we have people with these different kind of backgrounds or whatever relate to each other? How could we make, in a, in a firm that had never had women before, um, it, you know, in, in sort of non-secretarial roles, how can we make women feel welcome? Or in a firm that had never had African-Americans in it before in these kinds of roles, how can we make African, et cetera? Um, that was an urgent and pressing need. And so that, that companies had to fill. And so they sort of reached for this training that people had been developing and tooling with or um, on uh, this sort of diversity training. But the problem was th this training had never really actually been, um, these models of training had never really been um, empirically validated. That is, no one had ever put them you know, into live situations and saw, do they actually achieve the outcomes that they claim to, to achieve? And so, um, you know, about a decade after employers started widely implementing these things, people went, huh, well, there still seems to be a lot of tension in the workplace. Do these things work? <laughs> and, uh, and so they started to sort of empirically study this, like really try to validate whether these things work or not. Uh, again, especially in actual real-world circumstances, not just in the lab or in theory or whatever. Um, and what they found is that they don't. They don't. They don't. They typically don't work. They don't. They don't. Not only do they not achieve um, the things that they uh, say that they're supposed to achieve, but they often have um, negative side effects. So, so in terms of not achieving what they what they purport to want to achieve. One thing that they do, um, that they, that I was going to say that they do do, but then it's like do do. But uh, one thing that they, one thing that they do, um, these diversity training programs, is they change how people. So if you if you give someone a, a, a sort of a survey before they do diversity training and then a survey after they do diversity training, the answers will be different, and, and so. And what happens as a result of diversity training is that people give, after the training, they give the answer that they're supposed to give on the survey. Um, and so some people, and so in the early stages, people looked at that as evidence that the training works. Well, before we asked them this question and they, got, they gave the wrong answer, after the training, now they give the right answer, so success. But, um, <laughs> but then when you look at, uh, have we, you know, uh, do minority employees uh, and minorities here broadly construed to, which can mean women or LGBTQ people or racial or ethnic, just people who are minorities living in the institution, do they feel um, uh, like, the, like the institutions are sort of welcoming or inclusive? Do they stick around? Do you see um, minorities and uh, these these minority populations advancing through um, through the ranks at the same rate as their sort of majority peers, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the when you look at those kinds of like outcomes, the things that they're supposed to to be um, solving, other than having people answer test questions correctly. Um, then, then there's actually no evidence that they work and, and they can be counterproductive. And some of the ways they can be counterproductive include um, they can sometimes make, but when you do training that tells you that, uh, for instance, racial bias is everywhere 
and everyone is racist and um, it can actually sort of normalize racism, which can make it feel okay. It can, you know, it doesn't feel so pathological then to be a racist if everyone is racist, right? Or to say racially offensive things if everyone's saying racially offensive things. So it can actually normalize the very thing that they're trying to avoid. Um, uh, simultaneously, though, because they do the training, it can make people feel like the institution is fair. So even though people are discriminating more, if, if an employee sort of raises concerns about how they're being treated, people go, you're out of your mind. This is not a biased workplace. Look at this training we just had to do. What's wrong with you? You're just oversensitive, right? Um, <laughs> so it can, make, it can make it a more hostile environment, ironically, um, uh, sometimes. And uh, for, for minority people, but then simultaneously, it can also make a lot of uh, people from the major majority group feel as though the company doesn't value them or that they prefer minorities over them or that they have to walk on eggshells when they're dealing with, you know, people from minority groups because they're, they seem, it seems like they could, they're easily offended and any little slight or, you know, any little thing you say could potentially be inadvertently, um, you know, construed as some kind of slight or insult or could cause them to be. And so, you know, if you're faced with, with this kind of prospect and you're a, a white employee, or someone, or a male employee, or someone from the majority group, you might just think, well, you know, the easiest thing is to just avoid dealing with those people and just, um, you know, deal with people who are like me because I don't have to worry about this stuff. And that's what happens sometimes. So as a result of this training, we see this, is that people become actually less likely to interact with people who are different than them because they feel like, um, because they, they become concerned that and this has important consequences later for things like promotion and uh, uh, hiring and who, who, you know, how, how opportunities get allocated within institutions, who gets mentored, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so it can have, you know, adverse impacts on the very people it's supposed to be helping. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so the real problem in some senses is, but the real problem, but, but at the same time, there's a real need, right, that, again, that these trainings are supposed to meet. It's like, how do we help people work together who, who have different backgrounds? And so the, the problem isn't the impulse to try to do this kind of training or some kind of training. The problem is the way that the, the, these kind of trainings are designed and implemented. So, for instance... Um, one of the main ways that, that a lot of diverse, one of the main things that a lot of diversity initiatives and policies and training uh, tries to do is to tamp down conflict. How can we avoid conflict? How can we make mm -hmm. it so that people, that's the wrong approach because, you know, if you have, if you're, if you're pulling people from different walks of life with different backgrounds and experiences and expertise and you're ramming them into an organization together to achieve some idiosyncratic goal where there's big stakes in terms of hiring and promotion, you're gonna have conflicts. You're gonna have conflicts. There's no way around that. Conflicts are going to happen. And so like a better approach is to be realistic about this fact and to teach people, how do you navigate those conflicts? When these conflicts happen, which they will, how do you navigate it? How can you have a conflict with someone who's different than you um, and have it be a productive conflict and walk away from that um, exchange able to still productively work and interact with this person, right? That should be the goal. Instead, the goal is how can we prevent 
these kinds of conflicts and blowups from ever occurring. And the result of that, of that second approach is that people tend to cluster with people like themselves. They try to avoid putting themselves in a situation where conflict will occur. That's the first consequence. And the second consequence is that a lot of the problems and tensions actually never get resolved. They just sit there and they build and build and build, and then they mm -hmm. explode into something that's even bigger than it would have been if you just taught people how to navigate conflicts to begin with. Um, so, that's, so that's one sort of erroneous way that people approach this training. And another one is that, um, another important problem is that, you know, this, the, again, the tendency to prefer people who are like yourself and to, to, to collaborate with, to, for hiring, for promotion, et cetera. That is a fundamental human tendency. I mean, they've done studies, for instance, where um, like from the, from the popular narrative, you would think that whites or men or you, you know, whatever are especially likely, are, are like pathological. They're, they're somehow like especially depraved. So whites tend to prefer other whites in a way that's different from everybody else, or men tend to prefer other men in a way that's different from everybody else. But in fact, we know that um, when you do studies, it turns out that, you know, say Koreans are more likely to hire and promote other Koreans. Uh, African-Americans prefer to work with, um, hire and promote and work with African-Americans. Women are more likely to hire and promote other women. LGBTQ people are more likely to hire and promote um, uh, 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 and create partnerships with other LGBTQ people and firms. Um, uh, you know, Mormons are more likely to hire and promote other Mormons. Muslims the same. Um, uh, you know, um, people who who graduate from Colombia have special affinities for others. You know, are, are more likely to want to hire and promote others who graduate from Colombia. Right? No matter what. Um, you know. So this is a tendency that that. That is just common. It's a fundamental tendency of human nature that we we tend to um, prefer people who we think of, who we view as like us on whatever you know on, on various dimensions. Um, now that that can be problematic. That can be a problematic tendency, um, and so it's a, it's an impulse that should be resisted, right? And we should show people how to. But this is the point: is that it's a general human tendency. So when you take something that's a general human tendency and you present it as a unique pathology of whites or a unique pathology of men, what you do is you create blowback. Um, you create a sense of, of, of hostility uh, between groups. A much better approach would be to teach these things as general cognitive tendencies, which is what they are, in fact, and um, give people practical tools and resources with how to cope with these general cognitive tendencies rather than presenting it as some kind of great moral failing that arises out of America's, out of the patriarchy and America's history of slavery and Jim Crow. And, I mean, there is a history of slavery and Jim Crow and it creates systematic inequalities within institutions. Again, like until the 70s, black people didn't really, uh, didn't have full access to colleges and universities. And that has important impacts in terms of, um, you know, uh, when you look at wealth among African-Americans compared to white or intergenerational mobility, right? Like you can see the legacy of these things, but the tendency to prefer people like yourself has nothing to do with that. Absolutely nothing to do with that. It's a deep, it's a deep human um, uh, uh, bias that completely independent of that history at all. Um, uh, 
expresses itself. Again, Korean Americans are more likely to hire and prefer other Korean uh, Americans. And, and in the international context, it even has nothing to do with America. If you look in studies that are done in Europe, you see the same patterns. People prefer to hire and promote and work with and build partnerships with people who are like them. So that has nothing to do with slavery or Jim Crow or the patriarchy or anything like that. And so framing it that way is frankly unhelpful. And it leads people to think that, um, uh, and it leads people to think that they're being attacked, um, that there's a double standard, uh, you know, that, that is applied to people from the majority groups as, as compared to people from the minority groups or, you know, that, that the employer prefers one group over another and things like that. Um, so you can actually, you know, better achieve the things you want to achieve with less resistance, with less like that kind of, because if people approach the training in, in, the, in the sort of resistant mindset, they can't possibly, they can't benefit from it. If you go into it thinking it's a waste of time, that it's biased, that it's against you, that it's, then you're not going to gain anything from it. Um, so it should be um, focused on general cognitive tendencies rather than these kinds of cultural pathologies. And it should be focused on providing people with, you know, um, again, practical tools and resources to navigate these general um, cognitive tendencies. Um, so that's those are some of the ways that the um, that diversity training, as it's currently, you know, practiced, goes awry. Another problem too is that the training doesn't isn't connected very well or very tightly with the specific jobs that people have and the specific roles that they. So it's presented as something that's kind of an extra thing, like uh, like it's it's a separate thing. So you have your your work response, your your real work responsibilities, then you have this diversity stuff on the <laughs> side. But like in practice, avoiding nepotism, uh, trying to be fair, you know, helping helping your helping people adjudicate differences. Like say if you're a manager. That's just the definition of being a good manager, right? Like, it's not diversity stuff to, to, to avoid nepotism and to try to, like, treat people fairly. Uh, <laughs> so that's how it should be approached, right? Is it, this kind of diversity stuff should just be integrated um, seamlessly into general training for how you do your job rather than this kind of, like, add-on module that's separate or, you know... Um, so that's an, that's another example, actually. Uh, when you when you bracket it off as a separate thing, then it seems like um, again something weird or uh, something extra or something, you know. Um, and, and so people enter, you know, engage with it in a different way than if it's just like, look, here's an actual practical challenge you face on your job. You have to you have to. Um, uh, say if you're a manager, you have to make hiring and promotion decisions. You have to make um, all all sorts of other decisions, and we have this general tendency towards nepotism. What are some ways that you can avoid that? Right? Um, that's a much better approach. But uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, changing topics now, let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump and the Trump phenomenon in politics, because, I mean, he also goes associated with things like, or accusations surrounding racism, sexism, and so on. So do we have any definite explanation as to why he won the elections back in 2016? Yeah, I mean, so what's what, what, what has constantly frustrated me about the narratives about Donald Trump and sexism and racism and whatever is the, the, the way um, there's a, okay, 
So the way there's a whole literature, like a very rich, robust literature. Like if you if you search like Donald Trump and racism on Google Scholar, you'll get something like 24,000 papers published since 2016. Like it's crazy. A crazy literature has been built up about Trump and racism and sexism and whatever. But one of the things that's wild is that when you look at the study design for a lot of these things, how how they're designed basically is they'll 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 say they'll look at voters and ask what is your opinion on these different um, race questions, uh, and, and frankly some of the and and they'll, they they use these scales like um, symbolic racism for instance, mm-hmm. which sometimes will code things like if you're against affirmative action that's coded as racism, which is problematic in itself, uh, you know. The idea that if you disagree with the preferred policies of the person designing the research, that that would literally be coded as racism is problematic and controversial, but we can just set that to the side. Okay, so what they do is they, they, um, they'll, they measure people's um, responses to these race questions and then ask them about political preferences, who are you leaning for in this election, Trump or Clinton or whatever, and so they've tried to find correlations between how people answer these race questions and what their vote preference is. <clears throat> okay, that's a fine thing to do, but one of the things you have to do, especially for an election that has happened then, is the picture that emerges from that correlational study, you have to make sure that it fits with the available data we have of how people actually voted. Um, <laughs> and if it doesn't seem to fit, you need to be able to explain that difference <laughs> and, or, or maybe rethink the narrative that you're, right? Um, but they never do this second step, this validation step. And it's a very important step. It's the, because the whole thing they're trying to explain is the outcome of the race, is, is how people actually voted. So if the story they're telling doesn't mesh with how people actually voted, then the story they're telling is literally worthless. There is no point to it. It's garbage, right? Um, so it, it doesn't explain the thing that it's supposed to explain. Um, it, so it's very important to validate these, these kinds of studies with information we have about how people actually voted. Now, the problem is when you look at how people actually voted, um, it's difficult to reconcile that information with the, available, with the, with the, with the popular narrative. So in 2016, for instance, Donald Trump... Um, uh, you know, uh, his turnout among um, whites was stagnant relative to the previous cycle. Donald mm-hmm. Trump got a lower share of the white vote than Mitt Romney did. Um, he was able to win despite his sort of middling performance with whites because he did especially well with minorities compared to his Republican predecessor. He did better with African Americans. He did better with Asians. He did better with Hispanics. Um, so, the and and here's so this is the punchline is that. Donald Trump won in 2016, despite middling performance with whites, precisely because he was a, he did particularly well with minorities compared to his predecessors. It was minorities, not whites, who are actually most decisive for explaining why the election went the way it did, if you're looking at it from the racial lens. If you're looking at it from the gender, you see a similar sort of situation. So a lot of the research is focused on men and toxic masculinity and whatever to explain. But the fact of the matter is women are the majority of the electorate and they have been for every election for decades. 
Um, so if you actually want to understand how a race played out, the votes that it makes the most sense to look at is how women voted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's maybe especially important for, say, uh, for feminist literature or if you're concerned about things like misogyny or whatever, like how women exercise their agency should be something that you value and look at. But that's actually not what a lot of the researchers look at. They look at men. And, uh, but, but here's the thing is when, what's interesting is when you look at how women exercise their agency, Hillary Clinton got one of the lowest shares of the female vote of any Democratic candidate other than Al Gore, for, I mean, other than John Kerry, uh, for decades, um, uh, for like the last 20 years. Um, and, um, and, and the way that uh, people try to, ex- the way that some scholars try to explain Hillary's lackluster performance with women is to say something like, oh, well, you know, it's uh, white women supporting the patriarchy, uh, you know, uh, valuing their race over fighting the patriarchy or whatever. But the, the problem with this narrative is that um, most of the votes that Hillary Clinton lost didn't go to, for among women, didn't go to Donald Trump. They went to Jill Stein, another woman. So it's not that they had a problem with a woman or a problem with a strong woman or that they were trying to vote for the perceived racist candidate. They just didn't like Hillary Clinton. Hillary, they viewed Hillary Clinton as a bad candidate. They wanted to vote for a woman though, so they voted for Jill Stein instead. Um, so, so this is a problem. Um, and, and so if you, uh, and so the, the, the whole narrative about sort of what happened on the gender line in 2016 is also, you know, just, um, it's hard to reconcile the information we have about how people voted with the narratives that get spun from these correlational studies. And this is true. And, and when you look at these trends, um, they proceed the same way in 2018 and 2020. So in 2018, um, uh, Republicans continued to see erosion with white voters, uh, especially uh, highly educated, well-off suburban white voters. Um, they continue to see attrition with whites, but held their, their, their 2016 margins with minorities. Um, so almost all the losses that Republicans saw in 2018 were because of defections of whites. In fact, they, they were pretty much purely caused by whites leaving the Republican Party. Um, in, in 2020, same thing. Donald Trump increased his 2018 margins, I mean his 2016 margins. So, and this is, minority turnout was up and Donald Trump got, a, so given the fact that minority turnout was so much higher, even if Donald Trump held his, his 2016 margins, it would have been impressive, but he didn't just hold them, he increased them. He increased them with Asians, he increased them with African-Americans, he increased them with Hispanics. Um, he got larger shares of the minority vote despite a much larger, of a, out of a much larger pie of minority votes, he increased his share. He lost in 2020 because he saw continued attrition with whites. Um, so the, you know, uh, whites continued to, Republicans continued to bleed white voters. Um, again, especially highly educated voters, suburban white voters, uh, um, uh, relatively well-off, you know, uh, upper middle class, middle class, like, and that makes sense actually, because when you look at um, who in America cares about decorum and civility and leaders being presidential and, you know, um, political correct, like it's this kind of bougie white people are the only people in America who really care about this stuff. Um, and, and so those are the votes that he's lost, that he lost from 
starting in the 2015 primary, you know, Donald Trump won the election, not because Republicans, voters overwhelmingly supported him. He actually got the lowest share of the, of the primary vote of any winning Republican in decades. Um, he wasn't, uh, you know, the re Republicans during the primaries were overwhelmingly opposed to him. It's just that they, uh, the, the sort of anti-Trump vote was divided between like 16 people <laughs> and he had the he had this biggest you know individual base um and so he was able to ride that uh, the fact that the, the the sort of fractured opposition into victory but it, it was never the case that um but so a lot of these um republican voters especially these sort of bougie white voters have never really been comfortable with donald trump and the party has been bleeding these voters for four years straight, um, uh, and they were able to, to, to win in 2016 despite losing a lot of these voters because of Trump's gains with minorities. But even though he continued to gain with minorities, the losses with whites were so much bigger that in 2020, he wasn't able to pull, off, pull it off. Now, now this story, which, is, which is, relies on data on how people actually voted, um, uh, used, looking at exit polls and um, uh, triangulated with uh, pre and post major national uh, pre and post election uh, um, uh, 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 studies by like NORC and um, uh, um, the American National Elections Survey, uh, looking at um, you can look at precinct level voting data and correlate that uh, you know changes uh, with that and correlate that with um, demographic you know data. Uh, you know, uh, within those precincts, and uh, no matter which way you you can validate it, six ways till Sunday. The 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 picture is the same, um, and it's that that Republicans have been consistently bleeding vote whites, uh, bougie whites, over the last four years, while they've been consistently gaining with minorities over that same period. And um, and so the the story about why Trump won uh, is. Uh, radically out of step with the available information we have about how people actually voted and for who. Um, and, and so, uh, and it's crazy, it's crazy making to me. Well, and, and another point is that the, um, is that the whole, the whole discussion is, is, I think, maybe focused too much on Trump to understand the trends with minority voters in particular. The trends with whites, especially bougie whites, seem to be driven largely by Trump, although, it should be, you know, it should be emphasized that really it starts in 2010 when highly educated voters, especially white voters, tend to, you know, start shifting hard to to the Democrats. It's like after 2010, um, but but that that pattern was radically like when Trump hit the scene, those people were like they had been slowly migrating, but then they were like, nah, <laughs> like, so the, the, the rate of transformation radically increased, um, uh, you know, when Trump came on the scene, but the minority vote, um, similarly pre trends predate Trump also going back to about 2010, uh, Republicans, uh, I mean, Democrats have been consistently bleeding minority voters for every midterm and every presidential election cycle over the last decade. Um, and, and so um, even that trend has, uh, is probably not so much about Trump as frustration among many minorities with the Democratic Party. But the point is, 
that you can't actually explain what happened in 2016 and 2020 very well with the sort of popular narratives that have been circulating over the last four years. Mm-hmm. But do, do we know exactly why he increased the share in terms of the minority vote? Why, for example, Black Americans, Asian Americans and Hispanics vote? Uh, why he was so popular among them? Well, uh, so uh, again, I think part of the problem is frustration with the Democrats. Um, so it's not so much that they love Trump, it's that they really just you know, they, they don't think they're being well served by the party they've been with for the last few elections. They're not seeing, uh, for you know, they're not, they're not getting results. Um, and, and so they're trying something new. I think that's like, that's one of the issues. Mm-hmm. Another issue is that as these kinds of educated sort of bougie whites start moving towards the Democratic Party, that frankly drives away a lot of minority voters. So to the extent that these sort of, um, professional professional whites have captured the Democratic Party and um, they're these sort of highly educated, relatively well-off whites are really into these culture war issues. They're really into wokeness and things like that rather than bread and butter issues that ordinary people care about. And so as as these sort of professionals have captured the Democratic Party and its agenda, um, then it's become sort of a less then it, it's sort of become divorced increasingly from the um, priorities and, and preferences of sort of working class people who are disproportionately people of color. Um, so that's, that, that I think is a, a big part of the, the story. But that said, um, it's also true that, you know, I mean, the, the, especially because the truth of the matter, the more these cultural issues become salient, the worse that is for Democrats among minority voters, because the truth of the matter is, my Hispanics and African Americans, for instance, tend to be more con- socially conservative on average than whites. They tend to be more religious on average than whites. So if you, if you really increase the salience of these cultural issues with respect to like the Democratic Party, what you're going to end up doing is alienating a lot, you know, parts of your base um, that uh, that that don't agree with the Democrats on these cultural issues. They were aligned with the Democrats because they seemed like better allies on things like civil rights or because they agree with, you know, um, uh, you know, state redistributive policies or things like that. Uh, uh, but, you know, to the extent that, the, that it stops being the party of civil rights and civil liberties and starts being the party of woke uh, uh, and, and sort of populist economic um, uh, uh, redistribution or whatever, and starts becoming the party of sort of woke gesturing and, you know, you know, um, and pushing cultural culture war issues in the schools and, you know, creating new laws for employers with respect to culture war issues and things like that. Like, that's not, that's not, that's not a policy agenda that, (laughs) that a lot of minority voters are going to be getting behind. Right. Um, so it would behoove the Democratic so so to the extent that Trump positioned himself as an opponent of of the of the I guess of the professional managerial class and its values, um, there's something about that that's appealing for a lot of working class people, uh, including a lot of working class people of color, um, and uh, so that's part of it. Uh, 
And then frankly, again, some of his messaging on things like immigration and law and order, you know, uh, people on the left have this, academics and journalists on the left, because, you know, people who are part of the professional managerial class in America have largely, um, largely embraced a worldview, an intersectional worldview, where they, they think that issues around like race and gender and class and sexuality and stuff are, are, are well integrated and um, are, you know, that they're part of the same basic struggle and that the, the um, issues of immigration and the Muslim ban and Black Lives Matter are similarly part of the same basic struggle. But actually most people who are not in the professional managerial class don't think about these issues this way. And so, um, and so there's this disconnect between how people who, who are in the sort of talking heads class think about these issues and how everyone else thinks about these issues. <laughs> and truth, um, uh, when you look at say immigration, uh, African Americans are some of the are some of the among Democrats. African Americans are the are the part of the Democratic coalition that's perhaps most skeptical of immigration, most in favor of of of, more, of a more restrictionist policy. In part because they directly compete with immigrants for a lot of sort of working class jobs, service class jobs, blue collar jobs, etc. Um, in a way that you know. Uh, again, professional managerial class Democrats don't, um, uh, especially whiter, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and, and actually, even when you look at Hispanic, uh, Hispanic views of, of immigration, um, they, they actually tend to be concerned about illegal immigration and tend to favor border enforcement, although they also you know, although they are, they are, they are also like very concerned with, um, uh, you know, things like due process and, um, and trying to find pathways to, for, for legal citizenship and things like this. But in terms of like the enforcement question, the border enforcement question, actually a lot of, um, uh, even Hispanic voters are, are in favor of sort of strong border enforcement. And, uh, you know, um, when you look at issues like, um, uh, crime and police funding. You ask African Americans, do you want more or less cops? And you're, they, they tend to say they want, you know, um, levels of police uh, funding and levels of numbers of police to, to be the same or to be increased even. Now, again, African Americans are concerned with things like abuses by police. They are concerned with things like disparities in the criminal justice system and things like that. But they're not for like defunding the police or abolishing the police or anything that remotely approximates that. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and so, I mean, there's a the great study too. Um, and, and things like the Muslim ban. Again, when you look at the, like Hispanics and African-Americans are, are likely to be uh, more likely to be religious, to be more deeply religious. And so, um, and so in virtue of that, often they'll tend to be skeptical of people of other faiths, which again is a normal impulse, right? Uh, so uh, they'll be, um, so they might be more skeptical of Islam or Muslims to view Islam as a false religion, for instance, that's harmful or antithetical to to, to their own values or to the values that they cherish. Um, and so policies like the Muslim ban, 
like the way a lot of people on the left think of like Donald Trump's anti-Islam policies or perceived anti-Islam, however you want to describe it, is that they think, oh, well, you know, Trump said something about Muslims. So obviously, you know, black people, Hispanic people and other minorities are going to hate him for this. But in fact, actually, a lot of black people and Hispanic people support those policies because they don't they don't particularly like or trust Muslims either. Or when you look at border enforcement, again, the thinking is, well, if Trump says something bad about immigrants, well, of course, other minorities are going to, you know, be upset about this. But in fact, again, you know, if you look at African-Americans um, and, and even a lot of Hispanics, they support a lot of these um, policies. Uh, same thing with the law and order messaging. I mean, there is this this. Usually, when when pundits oh, and even scholars, and actually this is another frustration with the way scholarship is done, um, like uh, when when scholars, for instance, study something like racial dog whistles. So a racial dog whistle is a statement that is presumed to be a to appeal to sort of anti-minority or white supremacist views, but in a coded way. And so mm -hmm. it's a message that white people are, that's supposed to un resonate uniquely with white people um, and that signals the allegiance of politicians with these white people. And so the like fundamental in this construct is that they, they should be statements that resonate especially strongly with white people and probably less so with people of color because they're a, way, a high context way of politicians talking to this demographic. But, and so a lot of studies on racial dog whistles just assume that these dog whistles uniquely appeal to whites. And so they only look at whites. They look at the effects of whites. So they'll, they'll present respondents with a, a racial dog whistle, uh, white respondents. And um, if, if it turns out that they respond positively to it, they say, aha, see, this is proof that, he, he, you know, and so, but the problem, of course, is that there's no control there. They're, they're, not, they're not seeing if there's systematic variance between whites and other people. And the few studies that have presented minorities with these same uh, statements, actually, it turns out that they don't unique, you know, resonate uniquely with whites. So there was a great study by Ian Hanny Lopez um, uh, where he presented black, white, and Hispanic respondents with classical cases of racial dog whistles um, from Donald Trump and had them and, and asked them two questions, well, a few questions, but the two that are most relevant are, do you agree, like, does the statement resonate with you? And do you find this racist or offensive? And, um, over, and it turned out that um, uh, Hispanic people were more likely than whites to actually to find the messages compelling uh, and uh, African Americans as well. Um, both African Americans and Hispanics found the me found these messages on immigration and law and order and, and stuff that were coded as classic racial dog whistles. To be, um, to be, they found it more compelling than white people did. So they actually resonated more with minorities than whites, which is the opposite of what the whole racial dog whistle framework would predict. And um, and more than that across racial groups, whether you look at blacks, whites, or Hispanics, most respondents did not find them to be racist or offensive in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and actually the same is true with um, other constructs like microaggressions. So similarly, 
when you when you present you know um, African Americans or Hispanics with sort of canonical examples of microaggressions and ask, do you find this offensive? Overwhelmingly, they say no, they don't. Um, and so you know, um, and so there's this problem where things are defined as racist or you know theoretically coded as racist. And so, whole, and so studies are designed in a way that takes for granted that, you know, that these microaggressions are offensive or that these statements are, are in fact, racial, you know, uniquely appealing to whites instead of minorities. It just takes this for granted. It's built into the study design. When, in fact, it turns out if you actually question that premise, that oftentimes these assumptions don't hold up. And and this is a um, <laughs> this is a problem with a with a lot of with social research on a lot of questions, but it's been particularly egregious in many respects with research on Trump and Trump voters, in part because there's such a big appetite for for works that are proving that Trump voters are racist or sexist or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was a real gold rush. I mean, that's why you saw twenty. 5,000 studies proving that Trump is racist in four years, right? Um, it's because there's a real appetite for this. It's easy, to, it's easy to get those kinds of publications through peer review, which is good for your tenure file. Journalists are eager, eager to cover that kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, they're more likely to go to get circulated on social media. They're more likely to be cited because other people are, again, are looking for proof for this very claim. And so work that provides that proof is likely to be cited. And so it's created this gold rush around sort of Trump studies. And so some of these problems are especially pronounced here, but they're actually endemic for research on a lot of issues, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, well before Trump. So that, uh, they're just especially egregious here. And, 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 and in part also egregious because it's a, because Trump studies such as it is, is, is a, is a new, you know, it's a newish, um, it's a new phenomenon that they're trying to sort of uh, 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 wrestle with or a new framing that they're playing with or whatever. And, and anytime something is like hot off the presses like that, there's just a lot of garbage that, you know, happens um, while people are trying to work through the, uh, you know, things become more rigorous as they go generally. Um, and, uh, and so, the, you know, the novelty of it is, is actually part of the problem too. Um, but yeah, and, and the rush, you know, the rush aspect of it, because again, these are things that are cobbled together quickly to be maximally relevant and to speak to the moment and whatever. And, you know, journals similarly um, have, you know, uh, maybe accelerated timetables to get some of these more pressing mm -hmm. issues out so that they can intervene in public discussions and, you know, um, yeah. And so some of these tendencies, which are just common in social research and on a lot of issues are sort of especially pronounced, I think, in the Trump studies literature. Um, but the the basic, um, but but you know, the basic point, I guess, is the basic takeaway is that the the overall narrative that emerges from the Trump studies literature is difficult to reconcile again with the available data we have about how people voted and for whom, and it's. The, the one takeaway that I hope people get from, the, from this whole debacle 
to the extent that there is ever a reckoning with how far afield um, is that it's super important for these kinds of correlational studies to, the, to, to, to check the extent to which these correlations that emerge, you know, again, match the data that we have about how people actually voted. They have to, they have to, you have to validate them against the phenomenon you're trying to explain. If you're trying to explain how, 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 you know, why people voted for Trump, then you have to be able to reconcile the data with how people actually voted in, in, in the election. Um, and so, you know, this is the methodological change that I hope that people um, increasingly adopt in the aftermath of the sort of debacles of 2016 and 2020 in terms of predicting how the votes will go in terms of explaining the, uh, the votes afterwards. It's just been a mess top to bottom. Um, <laughs> and and I, I hope that this is one lesson that people uh, take from it. Mm -hmm. So uh, another issue that people nowadays focus a lot about, particularly journalists, social and political commentators and pundits and scholars even, uh, is political polarization. But is that really a big issue across the globe and more specifically in the US? Because, uh, I mean, I've read some studies, particularly from people who study uh, perceptions of political polarization on social media and they confront them with actual data from society. And it seems that people tend to, even Republicans and Democrats, for example, tend to agree on more topics than they disagree on. So is political polarization really that big of a deal? Yeah, it's funny. So, uh, well, yeah, so, so, well, and you see this in a few ways. So for instance, there's a whole bunch of narratives about how we live in a post-truth world and fake news and, you know, people, uh, you know, people live in different realities and things like this, for instance. So this kind of question of epistemic bubbles or whatever. But what's uh -huh. crazy is when you look at fake, at, 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 um, is that when you when you present people for one for one it turns out that most of the people who shared fake news or who, who were even presented with fake news were people who were already hardcore partisans um, uh, who were like intransigently for or against um, you know Hillary against Hillary Clinton or for Donald Trump or whatever um, so so fake news didn't change votes but but then it turns out when you um, when you look at uh, when you ask people, it turns out that a lot of people share these stories um, just because they, they like the headline. Like the headline is like, it's, it's an anti-Clinton or pro-Trump headline and they are anti-Clinton or pro-Trump, so they share it. But when you, when you look at the clicks, like how many people actually read the story, it turns out that most of, a lot of the, a lot of the people who shared these stories never actually read them. And among mm -hmm. the people who read them, if you ask them, do you believe this story is true. Actually, it turns out they don't. Um, uh, so, so they're, they're, they're um, the assumption, for instance, with the fake news thing, is that these are all people who read the article and then believed it so intensely that they're trying to share the article with other people and that it's changing people's minds about issues. All of that is false, top to bottom. Every component of that narrative is false. Um, it's not really changing minds. 
a lot of the people aren't reading them, and the people who are um, who are reading them don't necessarily believe it, and they share it. Not again, not because they believe it, but because it's it's something that seems damaging to the to the person that it's sort of cheerleading behavior, saying nothing about the overall epistemic. And in fact, it turns out that um, even on basic factual matters, Democrats and Republicans actually agree uh, on on uh, are actually pretty close together. When you incentivize them, when you frame, uh, but so but so here's the thing: is when you when you present people with incentives to answer questions correctly, mm-hmm. then the differences between Democrats and Republicans on these factual issues, like basically disappears. And so what this tells you is that a lot of times when they're it's like so, for instance, when you present when you present Republicans with a picture of two crowds, one mm-hmm. one you know, for, for their inauguration ceremonies, and you ask them, which one is bigger? And they pick the smaller one. Um, it's not because they can't literally tell the, and, and you'll see headlines then that are like, oh, like a vast majority of Trump supporters can't even tell the difference between these two photos and really believe that the picture with less people has more people because they've been so brainwashed. Here's another way of interpreting that same data. Those people recognize what you're trying to do like they, they recognize that you're a you're one of these eggheads who's trying to gin up um, uh, sort of anti-Trump. They see what you're trying to do and they're refusing to give you what you want. They want you to say the the you know clearly this is the bigger inauguration crowd, which then they can use to hold up and say even most Republicans understand that Donald Trump is full of shit. So they understand sorry so they they understand what you're trying to do and they're refusing to give you that answer right. Um, and so like the shorthand is, and this is a big problem with surveys and polling and stuff like this, which we really have to find a way to grapple with as the divide, especially between social researchers and the public continues to grow, is that a lot of responses that people give to things like surveys and polls are people messing with the, they're, 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 they're people messing with us. They're not necessarily giving us their full and honest opinion on various matters. They're giving us the answer that that correlates with their political identity, right? So if you ask them, and this is true for, for again, for a number of, of issues, as people give the response they're supposed to give um, based on their political identity. They, and, and before, you know, people get, get all like, you know, elitist about this, it actually turns out that the people who are most susceptible to doing this kind of thing, to giving the right response based on their political identity, the more educated you are, um, the more likely you become to engage in that kind of behavior, because the more likely you are to to know what the right answer is and to give the right answer according to your political, right? Um, so, um, so the responses that you see in terms of polling on basic factual issues, for instance, um, don't necessarily reflect the fact that we live in two different worlds. It does tell us something interesting about the divides, you know, with how people are engaging with survey instruments and possibly the divide between the sort of mm, chattering class and everyone else. Like there's a lot of interesting things that it might tell us but it doesn't necessarily tell us that we are living in siloed worlds and we can't agree on basic facts. When you incentivize people to answer correctly or when you, um, when you ask them about questions um, that, ha- that don't have 
this kind of political valence, um, then you see wide overlap between Democrats and Republicans. And actually you can see over time, when you look at issues that become politicized, before they're politicized, you see broad agreement between Democrats and Republicans. And then after, as they become politicized, all of a sudden you see disagreements between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, it's, and again, it's not because they, they suddenly believe a different thing than they used to believe. It's that the answers they provide in response to the prompts are become systematically different, right? And, and those, that's, there's a huge difference between those two things and it's um, difficult to disentangle them, but that's the thing that we're gonna have to confront more. Um, and, and you see the same thing in terms of polarization. So, so for instance, um, there are surveys where they've asked people, how comfortable would you feel with your, say if you're a Democrat, how comfortable would you feel with your daughter marrying a Republican? And it's like, oh, wow, you know, vast majorities of Americans today are opposed to their, you know, their, um, children marrying or associating with someone of the other party. Uh, but when you ask people who are Dodgers fans, and like there was a great um, study that was done to test this uh, by Itan Hirsch. Um, he asked people who were Dodgers fans, would you be comfortable with your daughter marrying um, a, uh, a Mets fan? Or, you know, uh, and actually you get the same effect. Now, do they actually, and so this is the thing is like, what are they doing when they're answering this question? Is it the case that in fact, Dodgers fans would be horrified, horrified and would staunchly oppose their, their child marrying someone who liked a different baseball team? Or is it maybe the fact that when presented with that kind of a question, people just give a cheerleading answer. They give an answer that's for their team and against the other team, which doesn't necessarily indicate anything about how they actually behave in the world and what their actual and what their deep commitments are, right? Um, it's probably the second. It's probably not the case that Dodgers fans would actually try to interrupt the marriage of them <laughs> of their children in a Mets fan, right? Um, uh, and, and so, uh, but for, and so I think again, like there's this problem where we take the answers to these political polls sometimes too seriously. Well, or, or better said, we fail to recognize the social context that's built into the poll itself, that the poll itself is a social thing that's, and the people answer these questions, they're not just directly transmitting their innermost thoughts and minds into the, you know, out into the world but there's a whole social mediation process that informs how people answered surveys, including their perceived relationship, you know, the, the relationship that people perceive between themselves and the, and the people doing the poll. So again, if, if you perceive, if you're asked a political question and you think that it's gonna be used in a political way, that your answer is going to be used in a political way, you're gonna give a political answer to the question. You're not gonna give like your, your factual answer to the question or something like that, right? Um, because you're not, you, you don't interpret this as an, as an issue of facts, it's an issue of politics. Um, and, uh, and so finding ways to, to sort of reckon with the, the social context of, of surveys and polling and to reckon with the fact that the way people answer surveys and polling doesn't necessarily tell us their innermost thoughts and feelings, but could be like, artifacts of all this sort of cultural and political milieu in which the poll occurs. 
Um, like that's a deep problem for social science that we, that we need to find a way to reckon with. But, but one, one way that you can reckon with it is to, um, is to look at how the picture, again, how the picture that emerges from polling correlates with behaviors. Now here, actually, there is an interesting story to tell about how, how dating and marriage between Democrats and Republicans, especially among people in the professional managerial class, actually does seem to be decreasing. So, um, you know, uh, people who identify as liberal in particular uh, are less likely to want to, say, date a Trump supporter uh, <laughs> than they were in the past with, with respect to, like, they might have been more willing to date or marry a Republican in the past than they are today. Um, you do see that uh, in terms of like actual marriage rates by people across political line, when you look at the data on actual marriage rates, so not, not polls. Um, and similarly, uh, increasingly Democrats and Republicans are being geographically sorted and sorted. And you see this sorting happening across lines of professions as well, where um, professions associated with that are basically what Robert Reich called symbolic analyst jobs. So, so people who work in symbols and data and abstractions and narratives and images, and, you know, et cetera, are skewing increasingly with the Democrats and people who work like, uh, you know, uh, providing physical goods and services are for very various reasons sort of skewing more Republican. Um, so you are seeing um, polarization that's, uh, interesting forms of polarization that's happening where you're seeing sorting along geographic lines, sorting within professions, sorting um, in terms of dating and marriage, uh, that suggests that there might be some kind of there there. Mm -hmm. But that's not to say, but, but the way that it's talked about in the media, the hyperbolic way, it's like, again, like uh, the way it's talked about in the media, you would literally think that you know, uh, a lot of Republicans and Democrats are like literally ready to go to war, that they will literally kill each other or something like that, um, <laughs> right? Um, and so the, there's, there's an extent to which the, the intensity of it is maybe um, overstated in the polls as a result of how people respond to polls, as a result of people engaging with polls as political you know, agents instead of just telling people what's in their heart and mind or whatever. Um, uh, and so you see a sort of exaggeration effect, but there's probably a there there underlying it. So there probably is, but, but what's interesting, um, as you said, is that the, the, when you look at the, at the issues, mm -hmm. there actually isn't a huge divide between Democrats and Republicans on a lot of the issues. So the primary divide uh, which led uh, Jonathan Rausch, he has this great article uh, in National Affairs maybe called, what if, the part, what if the partisan divide really isn't about anything, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> um, we, we like to think that the, um, these kinds of divides are, are the response to people having different views on issues. But in fact, for one, the, the divides between Democrats and Republicans aren't big on a lot of the issues. And most people outside of the professional managerial class actually don't have strong issue, strong views on most issues. Um, like it's, you, it's highly educated and um, highly educated people, especially who have 
you know, again, strong ideological, um, uh, uh, strong ideological positions and associate particular views with these positions and have like systematic views that correlate with what, you know, that's less common actually um, for, for less educated um, voters and for, for, for just most people in general. Uh, and so what, what the polarization you see isn't about issues. And, and this is one of the, the, the ways in which people just fundamentally misunderstand politics is they think politics is about, you know, nerdy, wonky things about, you know, but, but it's, it's primarily, it seems like the polarization is on identity, right? Um, so um, different groups of people um, write different, um, uh, di write different identity things into the, into what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican. They assume that Republicans are these kind of people and Democrats are these kind of people. And I'm one of these kind of people and I don't like those kind of people. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican and I, and I, and so you see this polarization and it's not about, and again, it's not about disagreements about any policy issue for the most part. It's about like, what kind of person am I and what kind of a person are those people? And do I like those people or not? And that's where you're seeing the, the polarization. So to the extent that they're assuming that, say, Democrat, that Republicans are assuming that Democrats are a bunch of godless, wokesters, eggheads who are trying to, like, you know, dismantle the or whatever, then um, then they hate those. Then they they don't they don't like those people. They don't like godless, wokester, you know, uh, technocrats. Um, <laughs> and, um, and to the extent that um, Democrats view Republicans as a bunch of backwards, sexist, racist, ignorant fanatics, well, they don't like those people. They don't like backwards, racist, sexist, ignorant fanatics or whatever. So the caricature that, that people on different sides of the aisle have about what kind of people are Democrats and Republicans seems to be what's driving most of the um, that you see rather than any like robust disagreement about the issues or the facts or it's not about the issues or the facts it's about identity issues primarily mm -hmm. okay so uh, i have here two more topics to cover but unfortunately i think we are reaching our time limit today so if you agree maybe we could try scheduling a follow-up interview later this year or for example might be fun. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk again later. This is fun. Okay, so just before we go, would you like to mention where people can find you on the internet? Sure, I have a website, um, musalgarbi.com, um, and you can find me on Twitter, I guess, uh, at musa underscore algarbi. And uh, yeah, well, and if you go to my website, I have links to all my social accounts, so you can find me on whatever your preferred social channel is from my website. Okay, so I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of this interview. And Dr. Algarbi, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by people like you, so consider doing it. Otherwise, and if you like the interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. 
I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Pauline Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Newberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Spigny, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omer Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslo Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo. Ethan Solon, Roman Roach, Dimitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazevsky, Max Belby, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz. My producers is Arweba Jim, Frank Lucas Stafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Codreano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Nirvan Balachandran. And my executive producers, Michel Rogeski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.